BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right. If there's one guitar player that everyone absolutely must see in concert at least once in their lifetime, it's Tommy Emmanuel. He's a guitar player's guitar player. He captivates audiences for hours as a one-man show, and it's just him and his guitar. He does bring along some other incredibly talented and entertaining players with him to the stage, but everyone who knows Tommy knows that he's one of those guys, one of those rare enchanters who can effortlessly fill a room with the most incredibly dynamic range of sounds without any help. And he's done it all over the world virtually every night for decades, and he always brings down the house. recently had the distinct honor to sit down with this man backstage for Newsweek at a little place called the Rogue Theater in the town of Grants Pass, Oregon. Um, I'd like to start at the beginning, if at all possible, and just get your uh, life story. As they story. say in The Sound of Music, a very good place to start. Yes. Ah. <laughs> I'd like to start with the story of your father. I'm always taken back to the tale of him selling your house as a child to, to go on the road and go tour as a family around Australia. Yeah. Can you take me back to that time back in the 50s and, and early 60s and tell me what that was like for you? Well, I was very young. I was five. Um, and uh, we'd been playing together as a unit, my, my two brothers and my sister. We'd been playing as a unit for about a year, and we started to really enjoy it. We started to get a name for ourselves in the little town we were in and all that. And then we went in a couple of band competitions. In the early days, uh, the local radio stations used to run band competitions. And if you won, you had a chance to go on the radio and maybe uh, record something, you know, or even better, if you can get yourself on TV. And that's kind of what happened. We got on a radio show and then we won this contest and then we got a TV appearance. And it was during that TV appearance, there was a visiting American TV producer who came to Australia to be a, uh, a help, you know, a, a consultant, so to speak, because um, it was so new to Australia. You know, it was so primitive compared to what we were seeing uh, from here in America. Anyway, um, this American TV producer watched us play and was amazed and said to my dad, these kids have talent. The public need to see them. Are you going to tour? Are you going to take them on the road? And dad had never thought about that. So we drove home and uh, uh, mum and dad had a, a powwow in their teepee and came out and said 
we're going to sell the house and we're, we're going to buy a, a tent and we're going to buy a trailer. We're going to get an agent and we're going to hit the road. And that's really how it all started. And it was completely, I mean, it was a complete failure, actually, because instead of really trying to go th that market of getting on TV and getting to the masses, we decided that we would just go from town to town and play in the little halls, which is like the slowest method known in show business. But that's what we did. You know, <laughs> it lasted. We did like three years straight traveling around Australia. And then my dad had a pretty bad heart attack and we had a, about a three month break. And then he got well, and then we decided to go back to it. And then they decided uh, his health was deteriorating so quickly. He had a heart disease, which there was no cure for. And um, so we, we moved to a town where he could get a job and all that. And, but, and he lasted about another year. And then in 66, uh, he had a massive heart attack and died instantly. And... Um, so uh, I was 10, that I, it was just before my 11th birthday. And um, uh, m my mum, after the funeral and after four or five days of not coming out of her bedroom, she appeared and called all of us in and said, we can stay here and you can have a normal life and go to school and you can play on the weekends if you want or we can try to get a job with a tra another show that's already traveling and successful kind of thing. And that's exactly what we did. There was a, there was a guy named Buddy Williams who was like uh, the Tex Ritter of Australia. And he offered us a job and provided us with a little caravan. So it was a little four birth caravan with six kids and mum in there. We all slept on the floor and on the table and, <laughs> you know, and went around and, and we did that up until they forced us off the road. And the government, uh, it was called a, a child welfare organization. They only looked at it as slave labor, like child labor. That because we were the ones performing and earning the money, it was like we were the, we were the breadwinners but they, they didn't really consider at all that that's what we wanted to do, you know? No one made us do it, you know? That was pretty devoted of your father to do that and to see the potential in you kids from yeah. the start. How did your father's death affect you and the family and that kind of momentum that you had going forward? It must have been a major blow, but it also must have been some form of inspiration for you over the years. It was a blow to the family, but... Um in hindsight, we just got on with things, you know. We didn't, we didn't say we can't go on without Dad. We, we didn't say that, and neither did Mum. Uh, I think she just, you know, she had six kids under her wing, uh, two that were much younger than me. I, I would just turned eleven, so my sister was eight, and my little brother was six. So we were we were little, you know. That's, that's a heck of a choice to make uh, at a young age to choose to go on the road. Yeah, uh, especially with no, no money and, no, and, and really nothing guaranteed, you know. That's what we wanted to do. We, we didn't know any, any difference. And, and really, 
we would we would come into a town uh, where we were going to play, and we'd go down to the radio. So we'd find the radio station, and Dad would go in there and say, "Put my if you could put my kids on the on the radio, we'll 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 play live for you, and you can advertise the show." So we they would do that, and then when they discovered that we had personality and could talk and were, and were funny they 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 did so i remember reading the the weather report when i was 6 years old on the radio and and feeling like you know bob hope you know what i mean because as a kid i didn't just study other musicians and look and learn i looked and learned at comedians compares people who were good at communicating with the audience I studied them closely, you know, to the best of my young abilities. And so when you do that, it, it, it's a great joy when you go into a radio station and people discover that you actually have personality and that you're not just, you know, uh, a, a closed book and a, and a guy who uh, bleeds for his art. You know what I mean? I, I, I remember uh, about 12, maybe 15 years ago when that show, uh, Bob and Tom show, it was the biggest thing on radio in that time and I was lucky that I was able to get on but I could tell straight away that they didn't expect me to have anything to say and that they were all going to be funny and blah 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 and I just jumped in and started bantering with them and we had a blast and they invited me back twice <laughs> you know and so because I love comedy and I love the timing of that stuff. Speaking of radio, you had a, a pretty monumental moment as a child when you first heard Chet Atkins on the yeah. radio. Can you tell me about that moment and, and just what it felt like and how it well, influenced you? Yeah, uh, I, I remember it because when I heard him play, I could tell he was doing everything at once. And I knew without question that that's what I had to do, right? There was no, there was no ifs or buts or doubts or whatever. As soon as I heard it, I heard my destiny and I knew it. And how can you explain that to someone, you know? How does a seven-year-old kid hear something and go, he's playing everything at once? How does that happen? I don't know, you know? I still have no training. I don't read music. I play everything by ear. Um, and I, you know, I've just evolved and begged, steal and borrow like everybody else and f found a place for myself. Uh, in this uh, w wonderful life here on earth. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, uh, Jesse, is that when I got to meet my hero, Chet Atkins, in 1980, he told me the same story. He said he was, he, he tuned in the radio. Uh, he was living on a farm in Columbus, Georgia with his dad and and he, he tuned in the radio and he heard Merle Travis playing and he just said, that's what I have to do, that right there, you know. And, and that's a defining moment, yeah. you know. I don't do it like him and he didn't do it like Travis, but you can tell where we came from. I read somewhere recently that some of Chet Atkins' style you picked up and figured out in a dream one time. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, well, it's a particular technique. Chet made this sound with harmonics and none of us could figure it out you know every guitar player I came across I said have you heard Chen Atkins play blah 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 yeah what the hell is he doing you know like that anyway I, I, I remember I was about 17 
And I really wanted to make that sound here. I wanted to know how he was doing it. I was trying everything I knew to find it and I couldn't figure it out. And what happened was, one night I had this dream. It was a really vivid dream. And I, I remember it still to this day because it was red velvet curtains, spotlights. Chet came out in a tuxedo with his Gretsch guitar and he just sat there and did this technique that I was dreaming about. And that was the end of the dream. And, and this is true as God is my witness. When I woke up in the morning, I understood it. And I picked up my guitar and I made that sound. And I was so excited. You, you know, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. But the only way I can explain that is somehow, well, this is my theory. I think my subconscious figured it out. And I think it had to show my conscious part of the brain and, and so it played a little movie for it. That, that's the only ex explanation I can offer. That's pretty wild. <laughs> I, like I, I don't know whether that's true. I'm, I'm just saying that that's how I can, could explain that, you know. But a guy named Lenny Bro, who's no longer with us, who I met in 1980 as well. Lenny really perfected that technique, the, the harmonics, the cascading harmonics. It was Lenny Bro who really helped Chet refined that whole thing and he did so much more with it you know and then because I could make that sound there were no other guitar players around that I heard who could do that or who were doing that and so I had to come up with some songs that were that kind of were defined by my style you know and so one of the first tunes I played in that style was uh, Michelle by the Beatles and I, I worked out how to play it all and and then I did Summer Over the Rainbow. And uh, I, you can play a lot of songs in that style. But it, it, if it's going to be, you know, on something on a really, uh, on a scale of excellence and art and emotion, all that, it takes time to put a complicated arrangement together and practice it and make it seamless kind of thing, you know. What was it like to meet your idol and play with him for the first time? I know you flew from Australia all the way to Nashville for that experience. What, what was it like? It was beautiful. Uh, so I wrote Chet a letter when I was about 11, after Dad passed away, and told him I was a big fan and that I had some of his records and blah, 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 and he wrote back to me. And then years later, I get a letter just out of the blue and it, it was one of those quickly written notes. And on the top of the page, it said, from the desk of Chet Atkins. And oh, oh, what's this? And and he said, I just heard you on tape and you're really doing great. Here's my office number. Call me when you come to town. I was about 18. And uh, yeah, I can't tell you what that did for me. 
you know, to get a, a note from my hero. And someone in Australia had sent this tape of me playing to him and not told me. I had no idea. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of recording myself and sending it to Chet. I would never think of that, you know. And uh, someone just recorded me playing in their lounge room, you know. When we played together the very first time, the first song we played together was me and Bobby McGee. And I played it in typically in his style um, from, a, from a version of, of his. And, and he recognized it straight away, as in he, he knew where I got that from. And he just jumped into beautiful harmonies and little things. And he made me sound real good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a joy. It was a dream come true. It was like my life came full circle, you know. And then 15 years later, he calls me and we ended up recording together. More with our interview with Tommy Emanuel after this quick break. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to Newsweek Radio. We continue our conversation with Tommy Emmanuel. At this point, we pick up where we discuss his transition from being a successful musician, playing in bands and in the studio, to becoming a solo act, and ultimately becoming one of the most well-known finger pickers on the planet. I didn't just suddenly decide to go solo, let's just say that, because what was going on was, during the 70s and 80s, I was writing songs and I was developing my solo style, right? So I was making a living teaching guitar, playing on people's records, playing on commercials, um, being a songwriter, all that stuff. And then I was playing in bands. And then every now and again, I'd book myself in like a jazz club and do a solo thing. And it started to build in a way, like I did a band thing and in the middle of the band show, I'd send the band off and play solo. And so many people kept saying to me, the best part of the show was when you played on your own. And, there, and I thought, there's something in this, you know. Because I was doing it because it was fun and it was challenging and I loved it, you know. But I always thought, you know, well, you have to have a band, you know. But the more I did it, the more I realized it set me free. I didn't have to work to a list. I could just go out and make music, you know. Is it true that you don't use a set list? Never. I never use a set list unless I'm playing with a, a band or an orchestra because everyone else needs to know what's coming next. Right. When I go out there on stage tonight, uh, all I have to really decide on is what do I want to start with and, and how it's going to go. You know, and I have a plethora of music to choose from and, and put it together. Wow. How, how do you tell a story with a guitar? That's a good question. Yeah. Well... I don't know how it works. Uh, it's all about instinct, really. You know, 
I couldn't tell you exactly the, the method, the right method to use to tell me a story about something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when I wrote Lewis and Clark, that was one of the monumental challenges of my life my because I had to tell, the, how do I tell the story of the great unknown? How do I tell the story of uh, the rivers, the prairies, the valleys, the, the native people, uh, the American West, the rivers, you know, how do I do that? You did it though. <laughs> I don't know. All I That's know. That's what I get when I hear that every time. Well, all, all my instincts were is that this song had to be simple. It had to create space. first part of it because I was very inspired the inspiration to me is 90% of the deal you know they, you have to have a really be inspired to get something out and it, it, it comes to you I learned a great lesson writing that song because I learned that there were two songwriters inside me one's up here in my head and he's got a million ideas and he's throwing them at me and the other one is down here in my heart and soul, and he must be satisfied. He's the one that I have to satisfy. So I, I had read the journals of Lewis and Clark, and I, I was so inspired. How can I tell this story in music? So the theme came really quickly. And so I got the main theme going, and each time it came around to the chorus, my... Uh, a guy in my head was giving me so many ideas and no nothing was working and I kept at it and kept at it and kept at it for hours until I eventually surrendered and said I'm gonna have to go to sleep and and the music's gonna have to come to me somehow the message is gonna come so I put my guitar down and went to bed I woke up early and I was staying at a little hotel in Lake Oswego near Portland Oregon and I walked down on the balcony and looked across the lake and I heard this voice in my head and it said, if you bring your love with you, if you bring your love with you, that's what it said. And with that came, if you bring your love with you, with that phrase came the melody and the melody came to me. And I realized I was trying to force music and it doesn't work. As soon as I stopped forcing it and let it come to me, that's when it happened. So it was a great lesson to learn. That's incredible. Mm. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. Adam. You're welcome. Do you do you ever get time alone just to sit and play with by yourself anymore? All the time. Do you still get that thrill? Do you ever laugh out loud and get the goosebumps at your own playing sometimes? I, that happens on stage a lot. <laughs> If I tap into something wonderful, yeah. you know, there are other times when I shout at myself to to get my adrenaline up, you know, yeah. like I'll 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 just yell, ah, you know, really loudly, and and your body releases chemicals which are 
adrenaline type thing. Sure, I've heard the same the same aspect of the same method used in like martial arts, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I use it on stage. See, when, when I need a little kick, I, I just <laughs> shout in the middle of a uh, a song. You know. You famously want, you say it's a famous quote of yours that one day you pick up the guitar and you feel like a great master, and the next day you feel like a fool. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Ah, uh, it, it's still the same. I do all, as much preparation as anybody I know. You know, I'm changing my strings, I'm tuning, I'm practicing, I'm playing, I'm sound checking, I'm, I'm, I'm jamming, I'm in the zone. And there are some nights where it's just like unstoppable. Uh, the, the ideas flow and you just, you're just there. And, but it's the same preparation as the next night and you go out there and you, you can hardly string shit together be, 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 because you can't stop the shitty committee between your ears or something like that, you know. We all have that, you know. We all have those voices in our head. And, uh, you know, as much as you can say, don't, don't listen to that stuff, it's always there, you know. And um, it's just also different things. Like, for instance, if the sound is bothering me, there's something in the sound. Like last night, there was a distortion, and I think it might have just been in my hearing aids. But there was a sort of distortion, and it was making the, the bass on stage sound funny. And nothing I could do to get rid of it. If I moved over a little further... The sound changed too much. But in general, if the sound is real, real good, and I'm really in tune and all that sort of stuff, there's no stopping it, you know. There was a transformation, I'm getting, from my perspective anyway, when you kind of went from being a, a, a famous guitar player among guitar players and then you became like a household name. Did that happen sometime in the 2000s? Do you, or am I just kind of imagining this? Did it happen because of YouTube? I think YouTube did so much for me. There was a specific recording in Colorado from 2006. It was the first time I ever saw you play. Um, oh, yeah. I'm and it stopped me in my tracks. I remember like it was yesterday. I saw it like on E-Bombs World or something. And it was incredible. It was your Guitar Boogie uh, oh, yeah. track. Yeah. Did, did, has, that, has YouTube helped your career blow up? Oh, I mean, because everybody I know knows who you are. Well, thank not you. everybody I know knows who Joe Satriani or Vi is. You're but, but no, not really. But, but no, like my see, family knows who you are. It's the other way around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you've actually been playing with those guys recently, oh. and it's incredible to watch because it's like two worlds colliding, full circle. Oh, it's, it's beautiful to play with those guys, you yeah. know. In 2005, I was over in England and I had a new agent and all that. And he said to me, can we do two shows in the one night in Stockholm in Sweden? And I said, why? And he said, because the first show sold out so quickly. And I thought, how's that possible? I've never played in Stockholm. You know, how does anyone know me? He said, I don't know, but there's a big demand and, and the, the promoter there wants to put a second show on. Can you do a six o'clock and a nine o'clock? And I, and I said, oh, okay. So I flew in and did these two shows and I said to the audience, how do you know me? And they all yelled out, YouTube. And I said, what's YouTube? I didn't know. I didn't even own a computer. I didn't have a phone. You know what I mean? I was a caveman. And so it was a friend of mine who got up uh, 
uh, on YouTube and showed me on his laptop. He said, look at this. And there's my version of Guitar Boogie from a, a show in England a long time ago. And it's got like two million views. And I, what? You know, and, and, and so my tours in Europe started, started out in, you know, smaller places like 300, 600 seats. But it wasn't long before I was into the thousands. Yeah. And and that's that. It's because of that. So, uh, and the other thing is, is that YouTube and and things like that, uh, uh, they want people to comment all the time. So it's a it's a free for all. And and this whole generation of people now think that their opinion really matters. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know. I always say to people, this is just my opinion, which means nothing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I always preempted with that, which means nothing. In other words, I, I don't. Why should I walk around thinking my opinion really matters a lot? I don't walk around giving my opinion to people. If you ask me about something, I'll give you the honest answer from my perspective, and that's it. But until then, I'm not going to push my opinions on you. You know that I think that's wrong. But, but anyway. The social media has inflated everybody's sense of ego. Uh, mm. And I think we're just coming to terms with that now. Yeah. And some people are getting over it. You've got to give them the space to kind of grow out of that, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing I just want to say, too, is that because of, of things like Instagram, yeah. TikTok, and all those things, there are people all over the world who are recording themselves in their, loun- in their, their bedrooms uh, for a two, for you know, sixty seconds or whatever, and they think that they're going to have a career, you know. And I'm afraid that's not going to happen. Yeah. You got to get out and build. It doesn't matter. You can have all the social media in the world. It does not equal concert tickets sold. You have to create a demand. You know what I mean? It still comes back to what can I do. To, to give you the feeling like you really want to run out and buy a ticket and come and see me. That's my job as an artist. I have to create that. And the only way I can create that is give you everything i got and hit you over the head with it and give you such a good time that you've got to have it again. Yeah. And I'll be back in a year, I'll see you in a year, and you buy a ticket. That's kind of how it works. You have a grueling tour schedule that I, I think some 20-year-olds would probably... Yeah, have a hard time with. How do you have so much energy still? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a world champion napper, you know. <laughs> like, I'll, when we arrived here at 10 past 2 today, after driving uh, all slowly down the mountains and through all the snow, I got into my hotel room and I was literally asleep 40 seconds later. <laughs> and I slept for 15 minutes. Got up, got ready, came down here, started tuning and stringing and, you know, it's those little power naps that really, really helped me. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a late night, you know, party every night after the show. I'm, I'm, I'm not like that at all. Yeah. If I did that, I wouldn't last a week, <laughs> you know. you got to look after yourself. Do you ever look just back at... at- decades of being on the road and and night after night after night of shows i know it still does it for you right i know you yeah. still get that vibe from the audience it, you feed off it. it it sustains you yeah well it's because you're you're doing something good for the audience the great thing is 
I get to use my gift, whatever it is, but it's only for the good of everyone else. And that's what keeps me going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I don't really care about the stinking glory, you know? Yeah. I want to be happy and I want to feel fulfilled in life like everybody else. What makes me fulfilled and happy is if I do a good job. Then I'm really happy, you know? And then, I, and then as soon as I, I, I have a great night and everybody's had a wonderful time and all that, and I'm exhausted, my first thought is, got to do it again tomorrow how can I beat tonight you know what I mean wow but I know tonight I can beat last night you know it's not every day that I get the opportunity to talk to somebody who's responsible for you know writing the soundtrack to major portions of my life so I was incredibly nervous before this interview but Tommy is a world-class act in person just like he is on stage, and he was incredibly friendly and open and honest and warm and funny. <laughs> he also treats his fans and followers like family, so I cannot thank him enough for talking with us and entertaining us with absolutely everything that he's got over the years. Put his name in your bucket list if it's not there already. Visit him online, buy his incredible music at TommyEmmanuel.com. For Newsweek Radio, I'm Jesse Edwards.